Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 9. If you're not familiar with where Ecclesiastes is, it's sort of dead in the middle of the Bible. It's after Proverbs, etc. It's right smack in the middle of Scripture. Um, so you can kind of find it. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much studiness is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word, that we would be a people who fear you rightly, who submit to your word, who love it and rejoice in it, who repent when we're in sin, and Father, who look to you always, that are in awe of you, who are inspired by you, who, who fear disappointing you. Father, we would be those people for the exaltation of your name. Amen. Well, I remember getting a call early in the morning, and probably several of you may have gotten these kind of calls as well 10 years ago on this day. Um, my wife and I got a call saying, hey, turn on the TV. Uh, you, you need to see what's going on. Turn on the television. So we turned on the TV, and we sat there stunned as we watched planes fly into the Twin Towers on 9-11. I'm sure many of you remember watching the same scenes that morning. Stunned as we heard about a plane that had hit the Pentagon, as we heard about one, uh, another plane that had gone down outside of New York, and, and we, were, we were watching as people were leaning out the windows crying for help, and as some people were leaping from the windows, Twin Towers, and as the towers crumbled. And we were, um, we were sickened and sad and shocked, stunned. No idea what was going on. And I remember I had to go to a pastoral staff meeting that morning. That, that was a Tuesday, actually, at the time when it happened. And I had to go to a pastoral staff meeting that morning, and we were sitting around sort of stunned together, wondering how we'd address it and what we would do for that Sunday. And we um, actually got together with the pastors and elders at one of the elders' houses and watched um, George Bush address the nation that night and, and promise, promise that he would um, hunt down those who were responsible for this. And I remember as the news started coming in, you guys remember all this? And telling us, that this was done by or perpetrated by an Islamic terrorist organization called Al-Qaeda and that they uh, were led by a guy named Osama bin Laden. And some of us had heard of him before, right? We'd heard of him before because this wasn't the first time Islamic terrorism had reared its ugly head. But this was the first time that it had done so on this massive a scale and that it had hit the United States on its mainland specifically. And I remember when people flocked to churches all over America that Sunday, didn't they? They flocked in, and they were looking for answers. And, and what drove this sudden interest in spiritual answers was what came to mind for me. 
It's what I immediately started thinking about. Why is everybody suddenly now interested in God? What is driving this interest in spiritual answers? And I, I, I knew what the answer was. We were afraid, weren't we? We were horrified. We were filled with uncertainty. We corporately recognized the fragility of life, the life that we all share. And we knew we lacked the resources to deal with all this. And we wanted help from God, and we wanted answers from God, and a variety of answers came, didn't they? And in the last 10, 11 years, I'm not sure if you know this, there's been one of the biggest upticks in spirituality in the history of this country. Unfortunately, the answers that people are pursuing aren't good. And perhaps the worst answers came from those who think they can read the providence of God. You know what that means? That means they can see the events that are happening in the world, and then they somehow are some kind of self-appointed prophets who get direct revelations from God, and they can now tell you why those events are happening. And they went around saying it's God's judgment against America. Now listen, I don't know whether it's God's judgment against America or not. I'm not the guy to answer that question, and neither are they. And these opportunistic charlatans raise their voice at every opportunity, don't they? When Katrina happened, what did they say? It's God's judgment against New Orleans. And you can tell that I'm not happy with these guys, right? You can tell. <laughs> Why? Because, because they're not operating out of Scripture. They somehow think that they are now the divine source of revelation of Christ. Jesus had to deal with these guys. You know that? We're not the only ones who deal with these kind. Jesus dealt with them. Keep your hand in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, but look over to Luke chapter 13. I want you to see Jesus dealing with these same kind of self-appointed prophets who think they can read the providential acts of God and tell us what is going on. He deals with these guys in Luke 13. He is speaking at this time, and here's what happens. There were some present, Luke 13 verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this incident happened where Pilate had mingled the Galileans' blood with their sacrifices. In other words, they killed them. And they're asking Jesus, is this because those Galileans are sinful? Is this God's judgment against them? And he says this, look at verse 2, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Is that you think? Because they suffered in this way? So you see them suffer in this way? You think they're worse sinners than the rest? No, I tell you. Listen, no, they're not. I tell you, listen to his answer, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Eighteen people were killed by this tower falling over. Is that God's judgment on them because they're worse sinners than you? His answer no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, what's the answer that Jesus gives in the midst of similar tragedy? The answer is, you could die at any moment as well. Don't think that somehow you are more righteous than anybody else, that they deserve this more than you, and that somehow your life is going to be extended and their life is going to be shortened because of your righteousness. Don't think that. You could die at any moment as well. You are just as sinful as any of them. You aren't guaranteed tomorrow. So what does he tell them? You better repent. Turn from your sin and to the Lord before it's too late. Today is the day of salvation. 
And that's essentially, that's what I'm getting at. It's essentially the thrust of what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying as well, isn't it? It's essentially what he's saying throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you want to know how to handle life? Do you want to know what to do in the face of the vanity or the brevity, the shortness of life? Remember I told you that word vanity is like a breath on a cold morning. It's just there for a moment and it's gone like a mist. Do in the face of the brevity of life? Do you want to know how to be wise with the few short days you have? Do you want to be wise in suffering and in prosperity? Do you want to have the resources to walk through the 9-11s of this life? Here's the answer of the preacher of Ecclesiastes, and repent. Turn away from your sin and your self-righteousness. Turn away from your self-dependence and your self-centeredness. Turn away from your own opinions and assessments of things and turn to your creator. Turn to the Lord. Turn to his word. Hear that? Turn to Jesus. See, if you're going to live wisely in this life, you're going to live wisely in this life, there's really only two truths you need to know. Do you know that? Two. The preacher's going to sum up those two truths today. Two truths you need to know the preacher's going to get at if you want to have wisdom in this life. And frankly, these two truths that the, preachers of, the preacher of Ecclesiastes has given us are the two truths that I would say we would want to define or sum up everything we at Sovereign Grace want you to live by as well. This is it. Two things. You ready? Two truths. Here, here's the first one. True wisdom is found in the Word of God. True wisdom is found in the Word of God. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. Here's what the preacher says. Besides being wise, and this is actually the editor talking about the preacher, so you know this is an editorial comment. Here's an editor who's added on here at the end of Ecclesiastes to complete this book, and he says this. Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. That's what you've been seeing, right? He weighed and studied and arranged these proverbs with great care into this book we call Ecclesiastes. And the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. In other words, what he's doing is he's summing up what the preacher just did. All that you just read these are words of delight and words of truth. They're carefully weighed, studied, and arranged proverbs. That's what he's given you. He goes on, he says this in verse 11 about the word. The words of the wise are like goads. You guys know what a goad is? It's a cattle prod, right? Similar to a cattle prod. It's a sharp instrument. You, you poke things with it to get them in the, going in the right direction. You poke an animal with it to get it going in the right direction. So like a goad. That's what the words of the wise are like. The words that are found in the Scripture are like goads. They, they poke you into the right direction. You know what that's like, right? When you're reading the Word of God and you're going, ooh, you're getting a little poked and you're moving in the right direction. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. What are these nails are talking about? It's like a tent stake. That's what he's talking about here. And if you firmly fix a tent stake, what do you do? You hold down the fort in a storm, right? They keep the tent anchored. So the word does. Not only does it prod you in the right direction, but the words of the wise do what? They help anchor you. They help you stay firmly fixed in storms of life. And they are given, he says in verse 11, by one shepherd. So that one shepherd is the Lord. All, all the words that you read in here, are as Second Timothy, which I'll refer to later, says, Theopneustos, God breathed, spirit breathed. They, they come from the mouth of God. It's all the words. And they're all like goads. They prod you in the right direction. 
and they're all like tent stakes. They hold down the fort in the storms of life. That's what these words are about. And that one shepherd who guides us with his word is the Lord. They all come from him. And he's given us his wisdom in the Bible. And the Lord leads us in the right direction through his word. He keeps us anchored in the storms of life through his word. He walks with us through, through the reality of suffering and death and gives us eternal life through the word. That's why you say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by, beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the Lord is our one shepherd, and he leads us through his word. So he goes on to say, verse 12, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, My son, beware of anything beyond these, beyond the wisdom, the wise words God give. Beware anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. In other words, don't try to be too wise. We've talked about that earlier in the series in Ecclesiastes. It just wears you out, doesn't it? You can't answer all the questions. There are just some questions God doesn't answer for you. So when you get together and a bunch of philosophers get together and write a bunch of books trying to answer all the difficult questions of life, they can never really give us a satisfactory answer, can they? They never do. They failed for centuries to do it. And all that study does is makes them tired. And you go read the books, all they'll do is make you tired. Right? Just walk with the Lord, attend to his word. It isn't rocket science. You know, I used to make myself weary trying to figure out God's will or plan for my life. I used to say, what is his will for my job? And what is his will for the woman that I pick? And, and what is his will for which school I go to? And what is his will for which major? I, I struggled on the major one forever. I just switched like seven times in two years. Here's a simple thing. Attend to the word of God. Attend to the word of God. Place yourself under the word. Trust the word. Read it. Know it. Believe it. Then make decisions that are consistent with what God told you in the word. It's really that simple. It's not easy to do, but it's simple. It's not complicated. Know God and his word and make decisions consistent with it. But see, we're so interested in God giving us some fresh word or direction that we never attend to the, attend to the word he's given us. And I, the question I keep asking is, why is the Lord going to give me some new words when I don't bother to read this one already? So stop waiting for some sign from above or some shiver in your liver. Read your Bible. Make decisions consistent with it. The elders here of the church as a group are committed to the fact, we're committed to the fact that we have nothing to offer you. Did you hear that? It's great, isn't it? Come and pastor's coffee when we have one in the future and you come and you say, what does this church have to offer me? What do you, Jason, Pastor Jason, who's our assistant pastor, what do you, Chad, what do you have to offer us? And I say to you, we have nothing to offer you. We're thoroughly committed to that, right? There's nothing that we can do that's going to change you. The only thing we can offer you ultimately and the only thing you need is the word of God. That's it. That's it. The word of God is where life and hope and wisdom are found. And we can't change anyone. You know that, right? We can't change, we can't produce a program or a band or a small group or a service opportunity 
or an outreach event that'll give anyone life. Not one. Can't do it. I never had a youth group kid when I used to be a youth pastor come to me and say, you know, if it wouldn't be for that time you smashed my head in the snow on that youth camp, I would have never believed in Jesus. Right? If it wouldn't have been for that pizza we bought and those video games we played together, man, I would not be walking in wisdom with the Lord right now. No one ever did that. So they come to you and say what? Man, you showed me this in the word of God and it anchored my soul. Jesus says that, doesn't he? He's talking, giving a very hard teaching in in John chapter 6, and he says it's, it's the spirit that gives life. And he gives life through the word. And he turns to his disciples, and he says to him, he says, you know, all these people are leaving because my teaching is hard. Are you going to leave also? What's the response? Peter doesn't look at him and say, Jesus, you're the one that brings all the goods, does he? Why would we leave, Lord? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. The Lord provides that. What does Paul says the same thing in Romans 10, doesn't he? We ask, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 13, will be saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the one whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear if no one preaches to them? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. Further, we can't produce a program or a band or a small group or a service opportunity or even, you can't even go to one of Jason's amazing counseling appointments, which by the way, they're amazing. Mine are terrible. Go to him. You can't go to any of them and be directly matured in the faith. The Spirit of God does this through his word. Look with me. Keep your hand on Ecclesiastes 12 again. Look with me at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 which is, if you're not familiar with your Bibles, you have, you have the Gospels, four Gospels, and you Acts, and then you have Paul's letters. When you get to 2 Timothy, after that is Titus, and then you're going to get to like Hebrews and stuff. You've gone too far. Finally, even Hebrews, etc. So it's 2 Timothy. If you look at chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul is writing to Timothy, one of his disciples, who is now at the church of Ephesus, and Timothy is there to turn around the church of Ephesus. And Paul says this in verse 15, talking to him. He says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred, sacred writings, which what? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What makes him wise for salvation? Where does life come from? The word of God. And he goes on, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now I want you to think about this. When we speak, what happens? We breathe, don't we? And when God speaks, he's breathing out his word through his apostles and prophets. And that's what we have. It's breathed out by him. And what does he say about the scripture? It's breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Look, that's why we teach the Bible systematically book by book. That's why I'm teaching through Second Timothy, or Ecclesiastes now, and I'll come back next week and we'll be back into Luke. We teach you the Bible systematically, book by book, because we have nothing else to offer you. Nothing else. That's it. And in it is everything we need for life and godliness. If you believe the Word of God does this, I want you to hear this. If you believe the Word of God does this, then you should require of us, did you hear that? You should require of us that we do nothing less than preach it to you. I'm going to give you a job evaluation tool for me. You ready? So you can evaluate me and know whether to throw me out. If I come in here with some weak sauce speech, okay, 
or some unprepared lecture about some nice principles that I somehow tied to the Bible but clearly didn't, weren't driven out of the text itself, you should tell me, you should tell me, enough. Go back to your study and read and pray and search out the scriptures and don't come back to this pulpit until you're willing to address us with the word of God, not the opinions of men. Tell me, we don't need your silly stories, your dumb jokes, your lame attempts at being hip, and if I attempt it, it's going to be lame, okay? We don't need any of your musings and pop psychology. What we need is the Word of God. All that ear-tickling does nothing to convert the hearts of men, nothing to press us forward in sanctification, nothing to comfort us in affliction, nothing to increase our fellowship with the Lord, nothing to help us grow in wisdom, So don't come back here unless you're ready to preach the word of God. Isn't that where Paul goes with Timothy in 2 Timothy? He tells him, all scriptures God breathed, and it's profitable to do all this so the man of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. work." And then what does he say? Chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, do what? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's what we exist to do. True wisdom is found in the Word of God. That's the first thing we want you to know. We're going to live by that. We're going to die by that. True wisdom is found in the Word of God. Second, true wisdom begins with the fear of God. True wisdom begins with the fear of God. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, And verse 13, the editor of this great book sums up for us. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil. I don't think I need to explain that to you, do I? I'm just going to close the book and say amen. Right? That's not what I'm going to do, though. <laughs> but I could. <laughs> it's pretty self-explanatory. Look, here's the thing. I've heard so many believers tell me that they don't think we ought to talk about the fear of the Lord. They tell me, well, you know, God is love. The fear of the Lord is sort of outdated. Listen, the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord more than 150 times. Okay? It says God is love once. Once. Now, it does say God loves multiple times. But the fear of the Lord is talked about over 150 times. And I think there are numerous reasons why people say we shouldn't talk about the fear of the Lord, but I'm only going to address one of them, and here's what I think it is. I think they don't understand what the fear of the Lord is. That's why they don't want to talk about it, because they misunderstand what it is. So what is the fear of the Lord? What is it? Well, there are two types of fear of the Lord found in Scripture. You ready? Two types. There's a servile fear. That's the fear of a slave, okay? kind of fear that a slave would have. And then there's a filial fear. The word filial is a Latin word for the fear that a son would have or a daughter would have, a child would have. There are those two types of fears. The servile fear is found, like, for example, in Matthew 25 and verse 24 and 25, when, you know, if you've heard of the parable of the talents, it talks about the master gives each of these people some talents. And one of the servants takes the talent he's given, and he goes and he hides it. And when the master returns, 
The master says, why didn't you invest my talent? And the servant's response is, well, master, I knew you're a harsh master, and I was afraid of losing it. Hear that kind of fear he has? A harsh master, I'm afraid of you. I cower from you. And why do you cower in fear from God? Because you're under his judgment and wrath. And you're under his judgment and wrath because you're not his child but his enemy. And because you're not his child, you, you're right to fear this way. If that's the kind of fear you have, you're right to fear that way if you, if you don't know the Lord. But if you do know the Lord, there's a different kind of fear you ought to have. It's called a filial fear. It's the fear of a son. Let, let me give you an example of it. Um, or, a, or a daughter. Let me give you an example of it. I asked my daughter, Anna. She's, she's going to be nine next Monday. And we're going to Disneyland, right? So anyway, but I asked her, I said, Anna, I said, are you, are you uh, afraid of me, right? Are you afraid of your dad? And she was sitting there hugging and smiling, and she says to me, yep. I said, really, why? Well, I'm afraid when I do something wrong. And then I asked her, I said, okay, are you scared of your dad? Do I scare you? She said, no, dad, I, I love you, and I want to make you happy. So okay, you have, you have the right kind of fear. That's the kind of fear we're talking about. It's the kind of fear that Peter talks about in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and you don't have to turn there. I just want you to hear what he says. He tells believers in verse 17, and if you call on him, God, as father, you call on him as father. If he's your father, if you're looking at Jesus in faith and he's your father, call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish. It's the kind of fear that believers are supposed to have. And what is that? Well, a theologian and pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, does a great job defining it when he says this. It's that indefinable mixture, okay, that indefinable mixture of reverence and fear, and pleasure, and joy, and awe, which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. See, it's the kind of fear that the Apostle John, the man who laid his head on the chest of Jesus, the man who was one of the three closest people to Jesus while he walked on earth, the kind of fear he has in Revelation. When Jesus returns and comes to him and gives him a vision, and he sees Jesus in all his resurrected glory, and he says he fell as though dead. And Jesus had to come to him and say, fear not, because he had the right kind of fear. It's the kind of fear believers have. We revere him, and we're in awe of him, and we're filled with joy when we realize who he is and what he's done for us. And we rightly fear his discipline in this life, don't we? Rightly fear his discipline, because the Lord like a good dad, disciplines those whom he loves, doesn't he? When we fear the Lord, we keep his commandments and we flee from sin. That's what happens. You know that? When you fear the Lord, you keep his commandments and you flee from sin. In other words, when we fear the Lord, we walk in wisdom, which is why wisdom is called to be, or the fear of the Lord is called the beginning of wisdom. In Exodus chapter 20, again, keep your hands at Ecclesiastes 12. I'm going to show you one more text. Look at Exodus chapter 20. I want you to see both these kinds of fear in operation. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, if you're not familiar. There's Genesis and then Exodus. But I want you to see this picture. Exodus chapter 20, God has just um, given to Moses, and Moses has just delivered the Ten Commandments, the law. And here's what happens. 
in verse 18, it says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, that's what happens when just a little bit of the glory of the Lord appears, the people were afraid. Hear that? And they trembled and they stood far off. They were cowering in fear like slaves would of a harsh master. And Moses said to the people, verse 20, do not fear. In other words, don't cower in fear that way. Look what he goes on to say. For God has come to test you that, now listen, the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Isn't that interesting? Don't fear because God's come to make you fear. That's contradictory. No, it's not. He's talking about two kinds of fears. Don't be afraid in some slavish kind of fear. Turn to him as your father, and he will put the fear of the Lord in you, the kind that will make you keep his commandments. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now listen to Proverbs 9, 10, and don't even turn there, just listen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You see, the fear of the Lord causes us to not sin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those two things are coinciding as the same. To walk with the Lord in the fear of the Lord is to walk wisely, and to walk wisely is to flee sin and run to him. So it leads me to two questions for you. Are you an unbeliever? What do I mean by that? Are you someone who is not looking to Jesus in faith? Are you someone who says, you know what, I'm not that bad. Not that bad. Overall, my life is more good than it is bad. I don't deserve judgment. I don't deserve this eternal punishment or hell. You know, I do some things wrong from time to time, but in the grand scheme of things, there's no way I deserve all that hellfire and brimstone stuff. Let's be honest. I don't deserve any of that. Are you in that state? Well, let me make you aware of something. The Apostle Paul has described your condition in Revelation, excuse me, in Romans chapter 3, when he talks about the fact that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seek for God, none who have understanding. He concludes with this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. See, God is holy and he can't look on sin. And your sin, my sin, is grotesque to him because it's an offense against him. And we may not consider our sin that weighty. We say, well, it's just a little thing. What's the big deal? That's because we don't consider the weightiness of the God against whom our sin is being committed. So we don't understand how weighty it is. When you see him in all of his holiness, you're not going to stand there and object and tell him how it's going to be. Your mouth will be shut before him and you'll be condemned. Second question, and don't worry, it's going to get hopeful. Don't worry. Are you a believer who thinks you're exempt? Are you a believer who thinks you're exempt from the fear of the Lord? Do you say things like this? I know this is wrong, but God will forgive me. Maybe you never verbalize that to anybody, but you think it just before you're about to sin. You know what I'm talking about? You're about to do it. You're convicted. This is wrong, but God will forgive me. So I can get away with this sin because God's gracious. He'll forgive me, right? And I want you to understand something. Grace is not a license to sin. If you think grace is a license to sin, you don't understand grace. My problem with you is not that I need to hammer you with the law. It's that you don't get grace. You don't understand how gracious God has been to you. If you want to run around and offend him as a result of that. See, grace brings you out of the eternal wrath of God and makes you a child of God. But it doesn't offer you permission to live unwisely and to sin. 
doesn't offer you permission to not walk in the fear of the Lord. And if you're an unbeliever, or you're the believer I just described, the solution is the same, which by the way, probably that encompasses all of us. If we're honest, I bet everybody in this room when I said, among the believers, when I said, do you ever think about doing something and think to yourself, God's going to forgive us? But everyone in this room, that's happened to, right? You shake your head if that's true. Okay, don't be a bunch of self-righteous jerks. It's true, right? Okay, you know what's happened. So I want you to go grab hold of this. We aren't any better. We aren't any better than the unbelievers out there. We all need the same solution, all of us. And what is it? The solution's Jesus. Jesus. While we failed to fear the Lord rightly, which we did, didn't we? And we ran off into all kinds of sin and unwise living. Jesus is our wisdom and sanctification, Paul tells us. And Jesus is these things because he delighted in the fear of the Lord. You know that? Jesus did. In Isaiah 11, there's a prophecy about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. And listen, I want you to hear this, what it says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his, Jesus' delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord. You see, we're a people who look to Jesus. He has delighted in the fear of the Lord where we failed to. He has paid for the wrath of God on the cross for our sins because we broke God's commandments. He never did. He has conquered sin and death through the resurrection. He has sent his spirit into us so that we might be children of the Father. Jesus has done all that. So I pray, my prayer is that we would look to him and have a proper fear of the Father that causes us to be wise so that what was true of the church in Acts 9.31, I want you to hear this. The church in Acts 9.31, what was true of them would be true of us. I want, I want to conclude with this scripture. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Hear that? That's our prayer for us. Let me pray. Father, we ask... We ask that we would be a people who rightly fear you, who live under the authority of your word, see it as sufficient and love it, rejoice in it, are thankful, we're comforted by it. Father, who have awe of you and reverence you. Father, who fear your displeasure for our sin and, and Father, fear to let you down if you've been so gracious to us and who rejoice in you. Father, we pray that you would do this in us. Be this kind of people. And Father, we pray as a result of that that we would be the kind of gracious, God-honoring people that bring about the multiplication of the church because the world, the world hears from us the gospel of Jesus Christ and has life, and because the world sees in us a love for one another and for you that the world itself lacks. We pray this for your son's name. Amen.